WRIR 97.3 FM, Richmond's Independent Radio, this is The Creative Habit, where we tell great stories about creativity and innovation in Richmond and beyond. I'm Paige Goodpasture. Sasha Waters Fryer is a filmmaker whose work blends original and found footage. She works in both 16mm film and digital media to make documentaries and short films. She's currently working on a feature documentary on the American photographer Gary Winogrand, and she continues to make dreamlike short films that explore motherhood and mortality, among other things. Her past projects have been shown at the Telluride Film Festival, the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and the Tribeca Film Festival, to name a few. She's chair of the Department of Photography and Film at VCU, the number one public art school in the United States. Afraid of Everything, a solo exhibition of four of her short films completed between 2006 and 2016, opens tonight at the ADA Gallery in Richmond. I talked with her at the gallery about the exhibition and her work as a filmmaker. We're at ADA Gallery Mm -hmm. this afternoon to talk about a show that opens tonight. You mentioned that you are a documentary and short filmmaker, and so can you tell me a little bit about what kind of films you're going to be showing at the exhibition that opens tonight? Sure, the exhibition tonight is called Afraid of Everything, and it's four short films made in 16 millimeter film stock that were completed between 2006 and 2015. So it's a range of work and the works range in length from four minutes to about 14 minutes. Two of them will be looping videos projected. One will be a film on a monitor looping and then one will be actually a 16 millimeter film loop. And I'm excited to show you that because it's quite a, quite a kind of crazy archaic set up. And so these are films that are kind of personal, lyrical explorations of what it means to be a parent. And so they include footage of my family, images of my children, but I also use what's called found footage, nature films, archival films. I use in one of the pieces some films because it takes place in 1965, some footage from Vietnam and the war, so it's, and other people's home movies. So. I like to kind of fuse original and archival found footage so that at some points you're not sure what you're looking at or what time frame it takes place in. So you mentioned that these films are for the most part on 16 millimeter. So why do you choose, why did you choose that particular format for this part of your filmmaking practice? Sure. That's such a that's such a an interesting and kind of hard question. I've worked. I think I came to filmmaking from photography, from analog film-based photography. So I'm really attracted to the material and the way that it captures and represents light. It's also I use an old-fashioned hand-cranked Bullock's camera. It's just it's sort of part of the the pleasure of making the films is being out in the world with that camera, seeing how people react to it because it's also from the '60s, really old-fashioned. And, and the excitement, sort of the magic of not knowing what you're going to get when you shoot, because you shoot the film and then you have to send it to the lab and what might you get back. And there are also ways that you can manipulate the surface of the material. And so that's really interesting to me as well. So you'll see that we have also, I have film strips in the window 
and then 16 millimeter film strips in the window, and then some also in a film bin. And so that's sort of part of the show as well, just to foreground that as an image making material. Although it is anachronistic, people aren't shooting television documentaries or feature films for the most part with 16 millimeter celluloid. There's something really attractive about that material and foregrounding it. Is there something about this material that is attractive to you when you are making films that address your family life and your life as a parent? And it's kind of a leading question because for me, there is something really attractive in my life about taking pictures of my kids, for example, on film mm -hmm. as opposed to digital. There's something intangible that because I'm not deeply knowledgeable about the materials. I don't really understand why it makes me feel differently about the images, but it definitely does. Well, film is certainly a sturdier material than digital images or digital movies. Some of the footage I work with, like for example, I have a nature film from 1923. I have home movies from the 1940s and 1950s, and the colors and the images are just as vibrant as they would be when they were produced. You, wouldn't, you won't be able to say that in even 20 years about DVDs or digital ones and zeros creating an image on a hard drive. So I do think there's something about looking at, my films are very concerned with the passage of time and with a certain kind of consciousness and maybe almost mourning. And so there's something about film that I think reflects that passage of time in the way, it's sort of embedded in the material. That's so interesting because I would have thought that it was the opposite. I think, you know, now we hear so much about the mass of data that we have that we are amassing and how we are creating more and more information and knowledge every day than we did in the previous however many thousands of years or whatever. And for some reason that the mass made me have the impression that it's also more durable. And I love that it's not. It's not. I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting because people do talk about, you know, don't put pictures on the internet because they'll last forever. So we do think of those things as having a kind of circulation beyond, totally beyond our control that may stretch into infinity because it can be so easily reproduced. So digital images are easier to reproduce, but they also decay at a faster rate than celluloid. So there's a kind of paradox there. That is, that's really interesting. So you mentioned this one film that's on a loop that you're really excited about. So should we walk over and sure. look at that? This is the oldest piece in this show. So this is a film that I completed in 2006, and it's the only piece of the four that has some voiceover in parts of it. If you're just joining us, this is The Creative Habit on WRIR 97.3 FM. I'm talking with filmmaker Sasha Waters Fryer about an exhibition of her short films that opens tonight at the ADA Gallery in Richmond. Because it's on the loop, it won't start in the beginning. It'll just start wherever it was in the loop when I started it. So essentially, this is a 16 millimeter projector with a platter on it that allows the film to run through the projector, circle on the platter, and just kind of run in this continual loop. And it's a little, it, it scared us yesterday setting okay. it up. It's a little crazy.
Okay, so I'm getting really nostalgic looking at this footage. That's my, that's my little, my daughter who's 12 is a baby in this. She'll probably be horrified when she comes to the open. And what I'm thinking of actually is my own childhood. When I see those pictures of the clouds and the trees in the summer through the screen and the breeze and a red wagon and a hammock. <laughs> it's just, it's amazing how many sensory memories mm -hmm. are flooding back as I'm looking at this. So is this an example of one of the films that you have blended footage from different sources, so some of it is your own footage? Yes. So this section of the film that you're watching right now is all my own footage. This is a film that's in three parts, and so all three parts are introduced by images from other people's home movies. And then the first part is a little bit of a mix of footage. It's mostly my own footage shot actually in Super 8 in Rome, Italy. And then the middle of the film uses footage from an autopsy. So it's an autopsy of a human brain. Wow. That's the I'm not sure I would feel as nostalgic <laughs> yeah, when no, I saw that not, part. You're not, gonna see, you're not gonna feel nostalgic <laughs> with that part. It's, it's a kind of a shocking. What's, what's interesting to me about that footage is that it's shocking at first and then it, you, you, can, you kind of can become used to it pretty quickly. And then there's voiceover that goes with it. So the projector is Kind of an old-fashioned movie projector that you might have seen on, like, Leave it to Beaver or something. Exactly. <laughs> and normally it would have two right. spools, mm -hmm. one in the front and one in the back, and the movie would spool from back to front or front to back. Mm -hmm. I don't know which. And then you'd have but, to rewind it. Right. And you have set it up so that it has the spool horizontally on the top so that it's continually winding and unwinding right. itself. So just to understand kind of the loop mechanism. I am excited about watching the, the whole loop. But a couple of things that were, that I really struck me as I was watching that was one, the, the vibrancy of the color. Mm -hmm. And I know that in, you know, in digital film making, you can manipulate it endlessly mm -hmm. yourself. But film maybe is a little bit less predictable or changeable so right. are, I mean tell me about that process like there was this one scene in that film that must have been in Rome that is this incredibly beautiful table of tomatoes and oranges and you know all the things you think about eating when you're in Italy and I mean it was just so beautiful the colors so part of that is about the choice of film stock and the exposure and sort of getting that right on target and then Part of it is about working with the lab when I send my film to the lab. So black and white film can be hand processed. Color film technically can be hand processed, but you'd get a lot of artifacts and it's very toxic. So I send all of my film to a wonderful lab. I'll give them a plug, Color Lab in Maryland. And so there's this wonderful timer there named Chris Hughes. And so essentially when I send the completed negative, I cut the negative myself, I send the negative to Chris Hughes, he'll do a pass on it and send it back to me and then I'll give him notes on the color. There's not too much you can do though, right? You can say darker, lighter, more blue, more yellow, maybe a little more red, right? So it's really sort of at that level. But so we'll do, we'll go through the film and do that shot by shot.
but he's so good I usually don't have to give him very many notes. And then he'll do a second pass with those notes. This is so interesting to me because I'm getting a real sense of how you create a film. You know, because I think most of us, we feel like, well, somebody shoots the film and then you put it in the projector and then you watch the film, you might splice it and edit it. But I hadn't really thought about the, I mean, of course, you know, you control the exposure, the way that you're filming with your camera is different than the way that the film is running through the projector at the end. And I just, I hadn't even thought about the fact that you could control the exposure in a film. And is that one of the reasons why you like the hand cranked camera? Because it gives you more control? Certainly. I mean, there's certainly, there's more control in terms of, in that regard, and also more control in terms of the lenses. I wish I actually had brought the camera here. I thought about having the camera as part of the show, and then I was a little nervous about just having my camera out. But maybe I'll have it as part of the exhibition, because you'll see it's a, it's a, got a turret with three lenses on it, so you can very easily switch, just sort of, without having to unscrew the lens, you can just turn the turret and see the same shot three different ways. So wide angle, medium, and then a long lens. So there's that as well, that you can do that and then sort of with your body move in a different place and change the shot pretty easily. To sort of back up to a big picture perspective again, so the title of the, of the show is Afraid of Everything. Mm-hmm. And these films are sort of loosely about your life as a parent. Mm-hmm. So are those two ideas connected? And if they are, in what way? What are you afraid of? I think they are connected. I, I think I'm afraid of everything and move forward nonetheless. But the title of the show is also about the fact that I've had individual pieces included in, let's say, a group show at a museum or a gallery, but I haven't ever shown work like this in this context. And so, and, and in particular, the, the works weren't made for a gallery space. Like they were sort of made with film festivals and being part of a larger program with other works in mind. Me as the maker, maybe in the back of a darkened theater, having a totally different kind of engagement with viewers. So this is a different way to think about the work. Also because it's looping. So you can you come in and you might see, watch something from the middle and then you're hearing sound from one overlapping a little with sound from another, but they're different lengths, so they never quite play the same way. So that's also sort of a source of like excitement, but also, okay, I'm going to see if I can take these films made with one kind of viewing experience and setting in mind and make them translate into this space. Because so many artists think about space in relationship to their work, and filmmakers do too, but we think about the space on the screen. We don't necessarily think about the three-dimensional space in which it's going to be viewed. So that's sort of an interesting challenge that I set for myself. So that relates to one of the questions that I thought about before I came to the gallery today, which is that, you know, showing a group of films, of short films, of a filmmaker in a visual arts gallery is not something that is, even now, is done on a regular basis, but definitely that has changed. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, over the course of your career, have you seen the boundary between visual arts and filmmaking and photography change and in what way and has that changed the way that you make your work? I don't 
think it's changed the way I make my work necessarily. I have a new short film that I'm just finishing up. It's not really ready to be in this, but I did think about it a little more as something that could be installed in a, in a space, mostly in particular because I collaborated with Stephen Vitiello on the sound, and the sound is so beautiful, and, and it, it really kind of deserves its own sonic space as well. But I think there are more and more artists who identify primarily with another medium, like painting or sculpture, who are using video as a tool, and I think that's very exciting. So I do think you see people who are self-identified as sculptors who will include a video somehow either embedded in the work or as part of a show, and that that's a way in which it's being incorporated more and more into the gallery. But, you know, the biggest challenge is that the gallery is sort of a classic white cube, and film is, is kind of best seen in the black box, so sort of figuring out that relationship as well. It seems interesting that some of those walls are becoming more mm -hmm. permeable. Sound is, an, is an also a great example of that, and how noise becomes music and music becomes sound art and right. you know what is what is that and what is the difference and how do you make it differently if at all or is it just called something different right. so <laughs> well, and I think with this with this space you, I mean you'll see when all four pieces are going there's sound there's there was no way for there not to be sound bleed so just yesterday here with John just figuring out where do we place speakers, where do we put, we had the projector in a different place yesterday because I liked it as a visual object, but we had to move it because even now here you can hear it, you know, on, when you're on this side of the room you can hear it, but it was, it was just too noisy there. So figuring out how that sound is going to also just be a part of the experience of being in the gallery is sort of a new way of thinking about it. If you're just tuning in, this is The Creative Habit. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and I'm talking with filmmaker Sasha Waters Fryer. Sasha's film projects have been shown in prestigious film venues like the Telluride Film Festival and the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and an exhibition of her short films opens tonight at the ADA Gallery. So I would imagine that when you, when you make film, when you make a film, you are composing the sound of the film to some extent whether you're doing it alone or whether you're collaborating with someone else. But here you're sort of composing a live sound experience. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like a, it's like spatially composing the sound experience, right? So figuring out, like, okay, these two pieces are in this room, partly because their sound is very complementary, and then the film's in the back because the projector's noisy, so... But also, and again, this might be getting too like tech nerdy, sound in film when you're actually projecting the film is different from sound in video because you can do so much more with digital sound. It can be stereo. Sound on a film print is always mono. There's just one speaker there. And so there's, there's a lot, there are a lot of limitations with sound when working with 16 millimeter and projecting 16 millimeter. So that's something I think about when I make a film, when I finish it, if I want to project it as a film, I'll have to make some sacrifices with the sound. Again, something that I hadn't really thought about. So now I'm thinking, is there a microphone on the, on the camera? There must be, mm -mm. and there's not. No, 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 all the footage is, all, all the footage, I always shoot silent. I mean, I could rig something up where I could do sync. I mean, you can do sync sound with 16 millimeter, but with a Bolex, 
it would have to be sort of fake synchronous sound where I would have the Bolex and then a zoom mic, but I actually couldn't do it by myself. I'd have to have someone else doing sound because the camera's loud. So I always shoot silent and then the sound is done in post-production. So it is like composing. And so you also make documentary films and they are classic documentary telling a story in real life. Very different than the films that you're showing here at ADA Gallery. And so how do those two parts of the work that you do complement each other and how do they challenge each other and maybe even make the other one a little bit harder or do they? First of all, I'll say every time I make a documentary, it takes five years to complete and I say, I'm never doing this again. So one of the reasons I started making short films was because it takes five years to complete a documentary, for me at least, for a variety of reasons. I mean, fundraising, working with a crew, editing something that's anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes long, it's just really time consuming. So making short films sort of started as a way to just give myself a break and do, and kind of keep myself engaged with the world, with my camera, and engaging a different part of my brain, then the, the documentaries tend to be much more, I mean, they're, they're, they're idea-driven as opposed to sort of an emotional response to an engagement with the world. So, so I think they complement each other in that way. And my documentaries are kind of smaller scale productions. I mean, I have worked with a crew on pretty much all of them, but they're, they're not huge documentary production crews. They're still smaller crews. And I, I've also edited all but one of my own feature documentaries. So there's that. I really, I mean, editing is my favorite thing about filmmaking, actually. Do you use your Bolex in the documentaries? The one that I'm working on now, I started to do, I, I shot some black and white portraits on the Bolex of everyone who we were filming video interviews with, and they're not working, so I'm not, I'm ending up, I'm not using them. But so I do, I do try to sort of bring it into the other work as well. And so one other project that is a little side project for you that I would love to have you share is the Bust Gallery. So, okay, so Bust Gallery stands for Bodies Under Surveillance Today. It's, it's kind of hard to get on the radio, because even when people see it, and I, it is, a, it is a three by four plastic laminated badge that I wear with other people's art in it. So each artist who's selected for the gallery has a solo show for one month. And this month, um, I have a conceptual artist named Beth Campbell. And usually people just send me one piece of work, and I wear that work, and then I take selfies in inappropriate places and post them on Facebook and on the website. But Beth did something interesting, which is that she's sending me new work that sort of, because there's text involved in her work and it tells a story. So we're on day three of Beth Campbell today. Interesting. But often when people, even when they see it, and I explain it's a gallery, they say, but where's the gallery? And I say, no, no, this is it. This is the entire gallery. This is the whole thing. It's this laminated badge. It's one artist and one work of art for a whole month. And Bus Gallery... It's kind of a clever title as well, because it has, you know, it also says its location. Yes. So. Yes, exactly. It's all about art in the age of selfies and surveillance. It's about this kind of, like, way of interacting with art that's unexpected. And it's also about the aging female body, right? And this looking, not looking, what, you know. So it's about that as well. It's about a lot of things. It's about, you know, it's about my, it's about 
my relationship to be, you know, having a kind of bureaucratic administrative job as an artist and my own ambivalence about that. So trying to take this thing, this laminated badge, which by the way, whenever I wear one anywhere, like if I get a name tag that someone else has printed out, my name is always wrong because I've, my first name is spelled differently by different people. My last name sometimes hyphenated, sometimes not. You know, it's just a mess. So that was also part of the inspiration. It was like, oh, that stupid badge. I don't want to wear it. What else? This is like, what else can we do with this thing? I love that. So tell me about the nuts and bolts of the exhibition. So it opens tonight, and it'll be here at the ADA Gallery in the Arts District in Richmond for the rest of the month. I think until October 29th. Okay. So the opening is tonight. The preview is from 6 to 8, and then we'll be open as part of First Fridays tomorrow night from 7 to 9, and then the, it will be open during regular gallery hours and through October 29th. Okay. Great. And if people want to get an idea of your work, you have a website as well where you have put up pieces of your films as well. So how can, what's your website? My website is pieshake. Dot com, P-I-E-S-H-A-K-E, -E, just all one word. Pie shake is a delicious uh, thing that I discovered when I lived in Iowa. And that actually kind of fits the theme of these films. It's fair, they're very nostalgic, but yet a little bit exotic at the same time. And Bus Gallery has its own website. Mm -hmm. That's busgallery.com. Great. All right, well, thanks, Sasha, Thank for taking you. the time while you're getting all this set up to talk with me. I can't wait to, to see it tonight. Great. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for today's show. The Creative Habit can be heard at noon on the first and third Thursdays of every month on WRIR 97.3 FM, Richmond's Independent Radio. You can also find this show and all our past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud. And be sure to check out our Facebook page for more great stuff about creativity and the arts in Richmond and beyond. Our theme music is by David Eastlick. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and thanks for listening.